Welcome back, my fellow creatives. I have found another interesting looking tome from my library's new release shelf uh, to read and see if in five pages it can tell me it's good because that's what we do here at the podcast. You've got five pages to tell me it's good. Uh, this particular book seems to be something of a mystery. I was um, enticed by the interesting looking cover. Uh, not that it's abstract or anything, um, but it, it kind of keeps to that idea of isolation that we saw in last week's episode, uh, Secret About a Secret. This book is Paul Doiron's I apologize if I mispronounce the name, Paul Doiron's Hatchet Island. And I am intrigued by the extreme isolation of whatever this land landscape is and the number of birds. Because if, anyone, <laughs> if anyone's dealt with intense birds, sometimes a flock of birds is not something you want to see. And I don't know, there's something about these particular birds that gets me wondering, you know, if what ominous item they could be covering up or cleaning up. Uh, I mean, we have here just, you know, for the blurb, an eerie, wi an eerie windswept island off the coast of Maine becomes the site of a double murder and a disappearance. So, yeah, I, I think considering uh wisconsin my home state has its own share of just those patches of wilderness those places of isolation just something i even wrote about on my blog recently because i was comparing the isolation in rural settings in sherlock holmes tales with um rural the rural life in wisconsin um something about that kind of setting can really add a lot to atmosphere, motivate character action, um, also makes it a little bit easier to, <laughs> to establish world building, you know, establish your setting, because it's just, it's a lot less busy. I mean, it's going to be layered. I mean, I'm not saying that it's simplistic, but compared to, say, an urban setting where there are a lot more moving parts in plain view, compared to a rural setting. Um, I think for a writer, there's always going to be that practical appeal to an isolated rural setting. But let's see how that uh, plays out in this particular novel. Um, let's get to the first chapter. Do we luck out and not have any prologues? Nope. <laughs> we have a prologue this time. Well, we had a good run. Okay. And it looks like our prologue is going to be as long as we can go. Well, maybe we can get to the first chapter. We'll see. All right. Prologue of Hatchet Island. Every night, no matter how many drinks he'd had or joints he'd smoke, he would awaken to the screams of birds. For an instant, he would think he was back on the island. Then his hand would find the lamp beside the bed, and the light would expose the messiness of his dorm room. The odd thing was he'd never had trouble sleeping on Baker Island, where the chatter of gulls and keening of 
Tairns, Tairns, had lasted from dusk to dawn. The night terrors had only started afterward, once he'd returned to the mainland. Now insomnia was short-circuiting his central nervous system. Through the fall and winter, he'd shuffled around campus until the administration and his mother had decided it would be best for him to return home to Maine. He had pretended to agree with their judgment, but the truth was he had lost the will to fight. Then morning, one morning in March, for reasons he could only guess at, he awakened to find that he'd slept through the night. He'd risen with a clear head and an appetite for real food, and now he was driving north on Route 1 with the window cracked and music blasting. Someone on the main birding listserv had reported a rare boreal owl in Bar Harbor, he told his mom, and he had decided to twitch it in the hopes of getting photographs. What time will you be home? she asked, thrilled to see him showered and dressed in clean clothes. Well, that depends if I see it. Before dark? It depends, Mom. On the passenger seat beside him was the expensive camera she had given him for Christmas. A Nikon D5 with a Nikkor Super Zoom telephoto lens. It amused him to think that the setup was worth more than his beater Subaru with its leaking head gasket. One reason he felt better was because he'd finally replied to Maeve. Since well before Thanksgiving, she had been sending emails pleading with him to return to Baker Island for another summer internship. The woman was, if nothing else, relentless, and the seabird colony was, without question, his favorite place on Earth. Maeve understood he wasn't sure himself, but swore everything could be cured by holding a puffin chick again in his hands. I'm just going to pause here for a second. Because I feel like we we covered quite a bit of time. Um, because we went from the endless sleepless nights of insomnia, despite drink or pot. And then suddenly in spring, everything is fine. And I'm going to guess it has to do with something that has to do with birding. For whoever this person is, we don't have a name. So I kind of wonder if this is someone who is going to go missing or die or this is our killer. I don't know. It's weird to not give any form of name whatsoever for someone who we should be sympathetic to. Uh, because clearly, you know, oh man, this person's been an insomniac. They're drawn to the birds. Oh man, I don't know. There's something, something feels off here in this first page. And it's not the slow burn buildup because I can appreciate what we're doing here. Something is clearly affecting this person that has to do with birds. And this person needs to get back to be around birds, needs to be with them. Um, they may not realize how much they need birds yet, but it's clear to us as readers that a typical college life won't cut it for this one. But there's something that just doesn't seem quite right with the establishing of this character. I, I don't know. Let's keep going. Maybe, maybe something will clear up and even out here. 
The weather was also acting as a balm on his spirit. Maine was enjoying one of its freakish thaws that made March such a roller coaster month. Officially, spring was still a week away, but with the streams choked with runoff and pussy willows budding, a person could fool himself into believing winter had been banished and it would never snow again. He'd been watching for early migrants, as he always did behind the wheel, but had seen nothing of note. The most interesting thing from an ornithological standpoint was a lone raven lingering beside a massive blood stain on the road. The remains of a deer or possibly a young moose whose carcass had been crushed to bone meal. Ravens weren't usually so bold as to scavenge in traffic. He'd taken the coastal route from Brunswick to Belfast, thinking it would afford him good views of the sea, forgetting that the road consisted mostly of commercial strips between grey stretches of woods. Occasionally there would be a seaside village, still hibernating. Lots of see you in the spring notices on signboards. He desperately wanted to see the ocean again, and felt cheated. He was trying not to think of Maeve or the refuge, but the scenery wouldn't per permit him a moment's peace. Every few miles, he would pass another random business named for the comical little bird she had helped bring back to Maine. Puffin Plumbing, Puffin Pizza, and most absurdly, the Huffin Puffin Cannabis Dealership. He used to find these things funny. So someone lives was able to thrive on the island, but doesn't want to be on the island. Yeah, there's definitely an internal conflict going on here that we are going to have to wait to find out on. I mean, we can't learn everything right this second, but I am still finding the writing choice of no name to be very peculiar. No, let's keep going. Paul, oh, I'm sorry. Past Belfast, dark clouds spread across the sky, and he found himself fidgeting, unable to get comfortable in his seat. Wasn't that the same black BMW behind him since Rockland? It was March. There was almost no traffic on Route 1, and how many black BMWs were there with tinted windshields and main plates? In the distance now, he glimpsed two towers of the Penobscot Narrows Bridge, rising above the evergreens. But his gaze kept returning to the mirror. The BMW wasn't tailgating him exactly, just keeping pace. When he sped up, it sped up. When he slowed down, it slowed down and refused to pass. After the morning's reprieve, he felt the familiar anxiety returning, like someone had cranked up the voltage in his nerves. If he could just get past, across the bridge, he would be safe, he thought. What story did that come from? The one with Ichabod Crane. If he could just get across the bridge, he would be safe from the headless horseman. He saw a sign for a scenic turnout ahead and made his decision. Without signaling or slowing down, he turned sharply into the unpaved pullover. The driver of the BMW kept going straight without a single beep of his horn. Meanwhile, his heart was throbbing and he felt dizzy enough to pass out. He's tasted bile in his throat. He threw open the door and leaned against the car until he could recover himself. While he'd been driving, the wind had turned. Or maybe it was because he'd stopped on an exposed hillside above the Penobscot River, frigid with snowmelt. 
but it felt as if winter had returned with full force. He waited for the BMW, but it didn't reappear, and shivering, he made his way back to the, oh, I'm sorry, and he made his way to the information kiosk at the end of the turnout, mostly because he had never stopped here before. A weathered sign advertised the observatory atop the Western Tower, but the viewing platform was closed until June. Just his luck. Lean down to read the smaller print that explained the spectacle before him. The only observatory bridge in the Western Hemisphere and the tallest in the world. The observatory is at 420 feet, 42 stories, the tallest occupied structure in Maine. The design of the obelisk towers pays homage to the local granite industry, which harvested granite from... He could read no more. He tore his eyes away from the sign to the man-made cliff blasted in bedrock across the road. The rock was jagged and orange with iron oxide, as rusty as the western face of Ayers Island, where it looked across the sea at Baker. Again, he felt dizzy. Okay. Excuse me, would you mind taking our picture? It was an older woman, somewhere between his mother's age and Maeve's, and a silent, uncomfortable-looking man who kept his hands in his pockets and had to be her husband. Virginia license plate. Tourists. What were they doing in Maine in March? Sure, he said, happy to. She handed him a smartphone that had been a that had been state of the art a decade earlier. He coaxed them into position against the backdrop of the bridge as if portraits were his passion instead of wildlife photography, and he snapped three photographs to be safe. That's so sweet of you. You're so sweet to do this for us, the wife said with a slight drawl. People always called him sweet. People always called him a kid because he had a baby face, because even with blonde stubble on his chin, he looked like a high school freshman. Now, I am... Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, now, he was back in the car and heading north again. There was a stoplight before the bridge. There were just two lanes separated by a concrete barrier in the center where the suspension cables held the structure aloft and a pathetic four-foot-tall rail on the sides above the water. He idled at the stoplight, staring down the long, straight chute before him. When the light changed to green and he didn't move, the trucker behind him leaned on his horn and he started to laugh. He had just remembered the lie he had told his mother. There never was a boreal owl. He stamped on the gas and drove halfway across the bridge. Then he hit the brakes just as hard, forcing the box truck behind him to do the same. Leaving the engine running, he swung open the door and got out, looking downstream at the river and the bay and the vast ocean beyond. He felt well again, better than well, ecstatic. He would have no need of his grandfather's revolver hidden beneath the passenger seat. Behind him, he heard a man speak. It must have been the trucker. Kid? Kid, don't do it, kid! Then other voices from the vehicles behind the box truck. No, please don't! But he was already vaulting the rail. With cries of horror in his ears, he spread his arms like wings, taking flight. 
Well, that was our prologue. Um. Okay. Sorry, it's taking me a moment to try and understand Paul Doiron's choice in starting with this. See, when you want to do... No, I... I only speak with my own very meager experience. But in the mysteries and the turns of the supernatural that we see, because I'll let's just we'll just say there's something of this because a, a, a little of this reminds me of Stephen King's um, what is it, The Dark Half, where birds play a role in um, in that story. I think to show something is wrong because of an experience on an island. That something deeply wrong happened to a person or affected a person. That something unnatural happened in a place of natural life and such. It just seems like a very strange place to start. Because clearly we are supposed to try and empathize with this person. I mean, that's why we learn about this person having insomnia for so long. And the fact they had given up the will to fight. They had lost the will to fight. We've all had those moments. And for some, yes, they finish as this character did. But this is a pretty extreme way to get us to even try and read this story. I think it had been one thing, perhaps another, perhaps some, a different approach to start maybe with the protagonist, to start maybe with the supposed positive view of this person, which is briefly touched on this Maeve person from the island who brought puffins to Maine how all the sorts of people have named a business after the puffins. I think that, you know, to maybe introduce us to the positive, perhaps even superficial level of this setting, this antagonist, I, I'm guessing this Maeve is the antagonist, the, some sort of impact before we go into the negative, that, so that there are layers to peel because it's like, what layers are we going to peel? Already we learn that whatever you do on this island, you know, you come back and you just want to end your life. And I'm sure there will be those readers who are intrigued and they want to know why, what happened. And I th that's a fair approach. I, I'm not going to debate that. But as a writer and a reader both, I can't help but wonder why we start with such an extreme example of violence through this suicide to hook your readers when you really wouldn't have to have done that. It could have been something a lot more gradual. And then if you really insist on having this kind of act 
in your story that you put it in a place in the plot where it can carry more weight because right now it just feels like it smacked us in the face and we're left but uh you know all woozy and dizzy and wanting to steady ourselves not wanting to come back to this i but that is that is just me i just don't see the point of hitting people with that level of an extreme act of violence that early it just it doesn't seem necessary and we we building up allows you to do more with that act so it has more of an impact i guess but that's just me um clearly paul doyron has done a lot of other stuff that a lot of people liked so if you dig it go for it um i i still think the premise sounds promising i just don't think i have the patience to go because i just wonder well what other extremes are you just gonna throw at me with as if it's a toss away loss of life can be a plot device sure but it's a plot device one should still take seriously but that's my that's my take so we'll see what next week brings maybe there will be something else maybe i'll try to find something as cuddly as possible i don't know about another pet mystery but maybe we'll find something cuddly <laughs> or something silly uh we could probably use a laugh so until then Read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers.